following message was recorded live at Three Strands Church. We hope it will bless you, encourage you, and challenge you in your journey of faith. We'd love to pray for you or answer any questions you have. Message us at threestrands.church slash contact. So we started this new series, Rent Free. How do we evict the unwanted thoughts that kind of bombard our brain and stick in our mind? And so whether you have a diagnosable condition um, or whether you just struggle with anxiety and depression or, or whether you're just uh, like everybody else who from time to time battles all these thoughts and all these feelings. There's nobody that's exempt from this. And so this will hopefully, hopefully be some good tools that you can use. Last week was the um, most theoretical or the most abstract we were going to get. In the next couple weeks here, we're going to be like super practical. And today, it's my hope that we'll give you some practical tools you can go out of here and put into place, start battling some of your anxious or anxious thoughts or depressing thoughts or um, lonely thoughts or just whatever unhealthy um, thoughts keep bombarding your mind. So last week I started with this idea from Philippians 2.5. It's kind of the verse that um, kind of triggered this series about a year ago. We were thinking through it, but Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, you should go back and read that whole chapter sometime if you struggle with mental health um, issues. But Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 says we're supposed to have the same attitude or some translations say mind or mindset that Christ Jesus had. And then I shared this last week that the rest of the chapter describes what that mindset is that Jesus has, what that attitude is that Jesus had. And you can sum it up into three things. He was humble, he was obedient, and he was self-sacrificing. And Philippians 2 lays that out perfectly, all the ways Jesus was humble, obedient, and self-sacrificing. And uh, that's the attitude or the mindset we're supposed to take on. The Bible has a lot to say about how you think and very little to say about how you feel. God is way less concerned about how you feel from day to day and more concerned about how you think. And so uh, you can't control your feelings. They're going to come and go, but you can control your thoughts. And when unwanted ones hit you, you have an ability or a, a choice or a freedom to do something with them one way or the other. And that's kind of what this series is about. And so I asked the question last week, where do we start? And where we start is admitting that we're broken. We kind of looked at some statistics and, and every 12 minutes in the United States, somebody kills themselves. And so since we met last week, hundreds of people in our country have taken their life because they were depressed or anxious or didn't know how to deal with feelings they were having or, or didn't know where to go to get help. And so uh, I hope we can prevent that, prevent that in our area at least on some small scale. That's what's hard about church life. It's, it's hard always to quantify like if success is happening because how do you quantify how many marriages have been saved? How do you quantify like how many kids have stayed off drugs? And how do you quantify like how many people haven't taken their own life. It's, it's hard to quantify disaster that gets prevented before it happens. But Jesus' way will prevent disaster in your life. And so we started with this concept last week that we have to admit that we're broken, that we all have mental health struggles, and we have to own those and, and speak them out loud and not hide them and not front and not try to pretend like we're perfect and have it all together, but be real and honest with the fact that we struggle Maybe with self-hatred or resentment, regret or anger. Fear has us in its grips. And we have to own that stuff out loud. Own our strongholds. And then I went beyond that last week and I kind of showed you, tried to show you in God's word where 
you go beyond just owning that you have a problem. That is a good first step, but beyond just owning that you have a stronghold and go beyond that to like embracing the truth or believing all the things that Jesus says in his word will make it better. All the things that he tells us will help your mental health. We have to embrace those things, not just say, yeah, Jesus has good stuff to say, but I don't really buy into it. No, we embrace it and buy into it all 100%. Whether we feel like it or not, it's the battle in our heart, the battle in our mind between truth and feelings. Because feelings are always real, but they're just not always true. Somebody might feel like the light is green, but if it's red, they better stop. It doesn't really matter how they feel. So there's a difference between truth and feeling. And so God is letting us know you may feel all sorts of things, but you have to embrace the truth. You can choose to embrace the truth. And you can force your thoughts to then line up with what God says to think about. And that's the real challenge. And if you were in a life group this week, which there was more people in life groups this week than any week ever at our church, so that's encouraging. And uh, uh, there's nine groups meeting all over town now each week. If you're not in a life group, jump in, because we're digging deeper into this study um, each week of life group right now. And so this week's no different. We're going to be diving into um, uh, brokenness and owning our brokenness. And we're going to be diving into like some of these um, techniques or weapons we're going to talk about to fight back against them. And so I uh, hope you'll jump into one of those. See me afterwards if you need to know how to get plugged in with a group or a group leader. But that was kind of last week. And that all makes sense because, you know, owning your stronghold, that's the Jesus way where the world says to just front and act like you're perfect. Jesus says, own your weakness. That's his way. And embracing the truth, that's what Jesus wants us to do. He actually told us he was the truth, you know. He wants us to embrace that. And then uh, being able to choose the way we think. You feel like you can't do that, but I promise you, you can. And gave some examples, even in Life Group, we talked this week about some examples how we often choose to act based on what we think and not on what we feel. Things like going to school each morning or getting up for work. or You don't do that usually because you feel like it. You usually do that because your thinking is telling you, I better go. So we make choices all the time based on our thoughts over our feelings. And God's saying, this is no different. You can do this when it comes to mental health. You don't have to believe the lies. And so now we're into week two, and I called week two taking back your mind. And so we're going to kind of begin that process of how do I take back control? I've admitted there's a problem. I'm on board. I believe that what Jesus says is the truth, and I want to choose my thoughts. I want my thoughts to be healthy. I want to pick them. And so where do I go from there? Well, here's where we go. We're going to take back our mind today. For those of you who are old enough to remember, I don't know if anybody in the front row is old enough to remember this, but anybody who's old enough to remember 2008, 2009, that time frame, there was this thing that happened in America during that, I don't know, about a year or two stretch. There was a bubble in the economy. The experts today call it the housing market bubble. I don't know if anybody remembers that or not. And it all crashed. Now, the whole economy didn't crash, but the housing market crashed in 2008, 2009. And uh, the housing market is a large chunk of the U.S. economy. And, and I want to get into all the like, political sides of what happened and what didn't happen. But just suffice it to say that, that during that stretch, there were a lot of people that got loans for homes that they actually couldn't afford. Or they got loans for homes because it was based on the income they were making at a job they thought they were going to have for 30 years. And then their e-commerce business went belly up. And they were out of work. And there wasn't any sales anymore. And so you had all these people living in homes all over the country that they could no longer afford to pay for. I mean, it was a, 
a fiasco. I don't know if anybody remembers that or not. But like, and, and it was really everywhere in the country, but it was heavily concentrated in the southwest United States. So if you were in like New Mexico or Arizona or Southern California, these homes were everywhere. And yet all these people, and so some of the people ended up, you know, they, the bank would foreclose on their house and they'd, they'd leave and go somewhere else. But some of them wouldn't leave. I don't know if you guys remember that. It'd be like all over the news and stuff. Like some of them just wouldn't leave their house. And there were so many of them that like the police were like overwhelmed. They couldn't even like evict people from these homes they weren't paying for. And you had all these people all over the country living in homes they weren't paying anything for. They were living in the home rent-free, right? And, uh, and this went on for quite some time, and, and this put the banks in like this huge dilemma. How do we get these people out of these homes? And then how do we recoup some of the money we've lost from having to foreclose on all these homes? And, and, uh, and the government came along, kind of bailed some of these banks out and stuff like that. But, but, but it, was, it, was, it was hairy for a while, right? Like it was kind of sketchy for a while. And, uh, but what these banks found was when they finally got into these homes, when they finally were able to get the people out of the homes, or they went to the ones where people had vacated the premises and, and gone to live somewhere else or move in with somebody else or move back home with mom and dad, you know? Uh, when they finally got into these houses, they found out that a lot of them were trashed, that they had been just like vandalized, and people were so ticked off that they got evicted and it wasn't their house anymore. And so they were just busting everything up on the way out. People had been squatting in these homes for months and months and didn't care how they treated them because it wasn't their home. They were just destroying them. And the banks came in and kind of had to deal with all the fallout of these houses that were in shambles, right? This is what it's like when we let the devil or unwanted, unhealthy thoughts live inside of our brain. You might think it's not a big deal or that they're just kind of innocent or just looking for a place to hang out for a while. But the truth is they don't really care about you. They don't have your best interest at heart and they're wrecking the place. And when you finally do get them out of there, you may realize that like they were doing a lot of damage in there because they didn't really care about me deep down. That's this series. I read this study this week that said, that the average human has somewhere between 6,000 and 10,000 thoughts per day. It's a lot. It's a lot. But what's more staggering is the study went on to say that around 80% of those thoughts are negative or harmful. And that somewhere around 90 to 95% of those thoughts are repeated thoughts from the same day before. It's like we just keep having the same thoughts over and over. And so today I woke up and I thought, I'm going to brush my teeth. And tomorrow, guess what? I'll wake up and I'll think, I'm going to brush my teeth. And 95% of our thoughts are like that. And so when 80% of our thoughts are negative or harmful, and most of them get repeated day after day after day, we start to just think negatively all the time. We start to just think we're messed up all the time. It could just be one or two thoughts, but you keep having it over and over again. And it's just living in your brain rent-free, and it's causing a mess in there. We definitely have strongholds. If you were in Life Group this week, I hope you were able to kind of pinpoint what yours was or yours is. But I had several people come up to me after church last week and were confused 
about the word stronghold. So I didn't do a good enough job last week probably explaining that. I want to do a little better this week. I'm going to give you my definition for stronghold, okay? Here it is. It's a, a pattern of thinking that has been imprinted on your mind and now causes you to perceive yourself or your surroundings in unhealthy ways. Just leave that on the screen just for a little bit in case somebody's copy it down. Now, Webster's Dictionary gives it a much simpler definition. Webster's Dictionary says that a stronghold is a fortified place. A fortified place, okay? And that's true too, you know, has multiple meanings. But when it comes to mental health, what we're talking about when we say stronghold is this thought or a pattern of thought that gets into your brain and becomes your habit or your normal way of thinking. It imprints itself on your mind and it starts to cause you to perceive yourself or everything around you in harmful, unhealthy, negative ways. You might look in the mirror and think, I'm ugly and hideous. And it's very possible that nobody else even thinks that. But you think it. You might think you're a loser and nobody actually wants to hang out with you. And it's possible that nobody else even thinks that, but you've been beating yourself up about that for so long that there's no other way for you to live than to live alone. It's this pattern of thinking, this way of believing or thinking in your mind that causes you to change the way you see the world and you start to see it in negative, unhealthy ways. But how do we evict those thoughts? How do I kick them out? So today what I want to do is I want to give you some of the enemy's best approaches to those thoughts, the way he whispers lies into your ear. And then I want to give you some of God's weapons from the Bible that say this is how you fight back against that lie, against that whisper. I want you to be able to take these with you. I want you to be able to look at them honestly and say, have I ever even done that? Yeah, I think I'm hopeless, and I think there's no cure for my mental health problems, but have I ever even tried it God's way? Have I ever even thought about the things he says to think about? Have I ever even fought back the way he says to fight back? Because kicking out those unwanted thoughts and retraining your brain to think like Jesus thinks is what will actually make you a stable person. Stable, that's a good word. You know, when it comes to mental health, I think everybody that struggles with mental health maybe use that word to describe them. Like I'm a little unstable, right? It's funny because God used that word in the Bible. In James chapter one, James describes this person that needs God's help. And he says the person should ask God for help. If you need God's help, ask him for help. So whether it's wisdom you need or a behavior you're trying to change or a blessing you really want to see in your life, you should ask God for his help. But then he says, but if you're going to ask God for help, you better really believe he can do it. In fact, if you ask him for help, but you think it's probably not going to work because you're so messed up or you're, you're too screwed up or your brain's too far gone or this can't be changed or you'll never be wise, you'll never be complete, you'll never be a healthy person in your mind. If you ask God that way, he calls you double-minded. Double-minded. Let me read it to you, okay? It's in James chapter 1. In, I'm just going to read you verse 8. You could read the whole first eight verses of that chapter if you wanted to. But verse 8 says this. He talks about that person. He says, their loyalty is divided. In some translations, that's where it's translated. They're double-minded. They're double-minded. Their loyalty is divided between God and the, and the world. And then he says, they're unstable in everything they do. 
So I want you to maybe write down the question or ask yourself this question, answer at the end today. Is it possible that my loyalty has been divided between God and the world? A better word for the world there might be like everybody else's opinion, including my own, right? Is my loyalty divided between God and everyone else's opinion, including my own? Because if it is, I'm unstable. Can I answer that honestly today? Because the enemy wants to plant thoughts in your minds that will confuse you and deceive you, that will, that will trick you and start to control you and will destroy you. That's his goal for you. And the answer to that is not for you to do a bunch of things better. That's not the answer. The devil's not scared of your effort. His lies don't lose power because you try harder. And we have all these techniques for coping with depression and stress and anxiety inside of us. And we try them all, right? From yoga to plant-based diets and exercise routines and power of positive thinking. We try it all. I mean, come on. You think the devil's like, oh, guys, I don't know what to do. They can put the bottom of their foot on their knee. What am I going to do now? He's not scared of your yoga poses. He's not scared of your little vegetable drink in a pouch that's supposed to be a whole meal. That's not going to make you whole in your mind. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with any of that stuff. But that isn't the weapons God prescribes to fight back against anxiety and depression. There's nothing wrong with exercise. There's nothing wrong with healthy eating. The Lord knows I could use some healthy eating, right? But I'm just saying those aren't the weapons that God describes to fight back against depression and loneliness and anger and fear. But he gives us weapons if we're willing to use them. The devil's trying to rip your very soul out. He's trying to control you and destroy your life. Let me, let me read it for you in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Listen to what it says. Be sober-minded. We're going to come back to that phrase, right? Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around. He's not a lion, but he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. We're at war. You get it, right? Like That's what we're talking about. We're at war. He's trying to destroy you, and God's advice... To fight back is not to try harder or to do a bunch of good things to feel good about yourself. His advice is, get your mind right. Be on the lookout. Let me show you that same verse in the NLT because I like how it translates it too. It calls it, stay alert. Stay alert. You don't get to take days off of this fight. There's no downtime in the battle against the devil. He's not taking breaks, and we shouldn't either. Stay alert. Watch out. He's our great enemy, and he's trying to devour you. And there's no better place for him to attack than right inside your head. Because if he wins the battle up here, he's going to win the battle out here. Because you will always act consistently with the way you believe. And so if he can sell you the lie in your head... And he's going to trick you into living the opposite of God's way. But see, God has a plan too. He wants you to be transformed, we talked about this last week, by changing the way you think. And you get to choose that. You get to decide. It's not out of your control. You get to pick your thoughts, and your thoughts can start to command your feelings. And so often, man, 
If I could pinpoint one thing that has wrecked American culture when it comes to our spiritual relationship and our spiritual help with the Lord, it's this. We operate so often based on how we feel instead of how we think, instead of how God thinks. In Life Group this week, one of the questions we asked everybody, if they got to this question, I'm not sure in their group, but one of the questions we asked everybody was, do you think you make decisions more often based on the way you think or based on the way you feel? And in the groups I was in, I was in two different groups this week, but in the groups I was in, we went around the room and it was kind of 50-50. Half the people said like, I think I make a lot of more decisions based on how I think. And some said, I think I make a lot of decisions based on the way I feel. But here's what I want to tell you today. I think it's possible we make way more decisions based on how we feel than we think we do. And that a lot of times when we conclude we're making the decision based on how we think, we've actually convinced ourselves that how we feel is the right way to think. And since I feel it, it must be true and right. And so we make a decision based on feeling, but everybody else in our life that can see it from a distance is thinking, it's kind of foolish. But we're convinced it's right. So we settle for the wrong guy. Or we spend money we don't have. We take on a responsibility we can't actually handle. We get into a relationship or a job or a, 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 a new thing in life that's like, we think we're ready for, but really we just felt like we wanted it. And it starts living up here. And before long, it starts to clutter up and vandalize. We start to live really a hopeless life. And God's saying we can choose to do something different. He's already won the victory for us. He's already bought our freedom from all these thoughts. He's already saved us. If you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, he's already saved you. Look at what he says. Look at what Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. For God has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. He's already done all the doing that ever needs done. He's already done all the work. He doesn't need you to do anything more. What he needs you to do is believe. Believe that he loves you. Believe that he's right. Believe that he's got a plan for you. Believe that his way will give you victory, bring you peace and joy. His way will bring you comfort. His way will bring you hope for the future. And that's really what mental health comes down to. Do I feel any joy? Am I experiencing any hope? I can put up with a lot if I have hope. I, I, we were talking this week at our house, and one of the things we said, we were going back to kind of like marriage counseling stuff, and, and uh, one of the things we tell couples a lot of times in marriage counseling is like, you don't lack the ability. You lack the motivation. Right now, if you're married, if, if somebody came into your house this week and they said, hey, we're going to give you a million dollars on Friday. All you have to do is not fight with your spouse all week. And they're going to record the whole week. You could make it five days without fighting, couldn't you? Because you don't lack the ability, you just lack the motivation. And that's how it is with mental health. We don't lack the ability to choose our thoughts. We just lack the motivation. What God is selling is something greater for the future. Eternal home with him in heaven. Eternal peace and contentment. Eternal blessing. 
And it's all based on his faithfulness. See, it's been said that you can live for weeks without food. You can live for days without water. And you can live for minutes without air. But you can't live for one second without hope. And God has bought you the hope already. You just have to buy into it. You just have to believe it. And none of it's based on my effort. It's all based on his great faithfulness. That every morning the mercy will be new. Okay, so uh, we're going to do something we don't usually do. I'm going to have Kayla come up and join me. Some of you guys know Kayla. Oh, we got seats, Kayla. How about that? We already got seats up here. I like that. Okay, Kayla's going to come join me. Kayla's my friend. More importantly than that, Kayla is a Jesus follower, okay? So I'm going to tell you a little bit about Kayla. I don't even remember if I remember all of it, so you'll have to help me if I forget, okay? Is that on? Oh, it's on. All right. Excellent. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. So um, I think I've known Kayla now for like, what, six years, five years, six years, something like that, five or six years, something like that. Kayla, uh, I met her through Kenny because Kenny knows everybody in the county. And um, Kayla came and interned at our church like five years ago. Is that right? Sound right? Five years ago or something. And so um, she was actually like a, a real new Christian then, huh? Like brand new Christian, only been a Christian for like a year or something like that. But, um, and she has a Bachelor of Science degree in marriage and family counseling, right? And she's six classes away from a master's degree in marriage and family counseling. That's, that's close, okay? And uh, I would consider her on some of these topics. Yeah, are we clapping for Kayla's degree? All right, Kayla's degree, I don't know. All right. <laughs> I got a degree too. I don't know if we're clapping for everybody's degree. But uh, I would consider Kayla to be an expert, an expert in mental health, more than me. I think she knows more about mental health than I do, right? And uh, I really like her. We were sitting at our house, at my house, her and I and Stephanie this week talking. And uh, one of the things I said to her, I was like, <laughs> this is probably arrogant. It's probably arrogant of me. But I was like, I don't even know if we have to prepare this. Because I feel like she meshes like super well with us in ministry. You know, from the summer she was here and stuff. I just remember that. Like we think, I feel like we think similarly in a lot of ministry stuff. And, and um, she's super cool and fun to hang out with. If you've never hung out with her, you can get together with her and her husband. They're both very fun to hang out with. But here's the best thing about Kayla, okay? Here's the best thing about her. You ready? This is why I like her so much. She loves Jesus with all she's got. And that's hard not to love. You know? Like she just loves Jesus. And, uh, yeah. And she's like an asset to our church. I don't know if you saw her last week taking, like, professional quality pictures of all of our baptism stuff. And um, she helps lead a life group now with her husband for young married couples. And um, that's going super well, I think, so far. But she just loves Jesus. But here's the thing about Kayla I didn't know. And I don't know if I didn't know it because she didn't tell me. That's what I think. Or if it's because she told me, but I'm so old I can't remember. That's a slightly less likely scenario, but possible, okay? Because uh, Stephanie knew, and Stephanie told me because she was gossiping, I guess. Not sure. So... About six weeks ago or so, Stephanie said, you know, your series that's coming up, you should interview Kayla for that series. I was like, what do you mean? 
And she was like, so then she blurted it out to me, and then I confirmed it with Caleb. But like, so what you don't know about Caleb probably is that she's been diagnosed with bipolar 2 disorder, right? And takes medication for it. And it's a battle, right? Mental health's a battle, right? Um, but here's the thing, the second coolest thing I love about her. Ready? Here's the coolest, second coolest thing I love about her. I don't think I've ever one time in the time I've known her heard her use her diagnosis as an excuse not to press into God's plan for her life. And, and, and that doesn't maybe seem like a big deal to you, but I'm telling you, like as a pastor, I hear that excuse all the time. I hear it from people who aren't even diagnosed. Anything that makes me uncomfortable, anything that scares me, anything that gives me anxiety, I just don't do it. I just run for comfort. I run and hide. But I've never one time heard her do that. So I invited her to come up here today and um, just want to give her like a couple minutes first to just share a piece of her story with you guys. And if you want to start us from like back at that time, uh, we, you know, when you like became a Christian and like we're wrestling with all that mental health stuff and treatment and all that stuff. And then um, after she's done, I'm going to ask her some questions and we'll kind of like piggyback off each other a little bit. and Just talk about mental health a little bit. Is that okay? Can we do that for a couple minutes? Floor is yours. Okay, so, um, yeah, Pastor Dave asked me to come over last week, and I remember listening to the message last Sunday, and I was like, he's going to call me. <laughs> and I just remember thinking, okay, I need to mentally prepare. And so then he did. He was like, hey, can we chat literally right after church? And I was like, yeah, for sure. Um, but uh, this story is going to be... I'm going to start from one moment where I was very young, because I think this might resonate with some of you. Uh, when I was like in elementary school, and this is just showing you how far back I was dealing with this stuff. Um, so I remember waking up, I was spending the night with my cousin, we spent like the whole night hanging out, and we were just having a lot of fun. And I remember the next morning waking up and being like, not able to get out of bed. And I just, and I was young, like very, very young. And I was like, have you ever had a moment where you just feel like there's a big brick on your chest and you just don't want to get out of bed? And when I said that, she kind of looked at me and she was like, no, that's so weird. <laughs> and I just remember being like, okay, I'm never talking about this again, <laughs> like ever, because I felt like such a weirdo. I was like, is something wrong with me? Like, what's going on? And that just kind of affirmed like what a lot of people think that I, what I thought a lot of people think about the things I have to go through. And so fast forward um, throughout my whole life, basically, I thought that I just had like major depressive disorder. Um, I just thought that I had depression and yeah, it was, it was hard. Like there were days I wouldn't leave my house. There were days that I couldn't do anything. And I remember, um, some of you all have heard my whole testimony from Life Group last year, but um, there was a time when I was in high school and I have a friend Kaylee back here. And so she's kind of like seeing me through um, <clears throat> a lot of the hard stuff. Like she knew whenever I was having suicidal thoughts when I was in high school and then um, I remember talking to her about it one night, and that was the only time I'd ever, like, really shared it with a friend. So then going into college, I remember becoming a Christian, and I was, like, again, having suicidal thoughts. And that night, I was, like, planning to take my life. And that was when the Holy Spirit, like, came into the room and just kind of, like, whispered to me, like, um, you're worth more than this. 
And that was the first time that I ever truly experienced God's presence in my life. And I was around um, 19. And then when I was 20, in 2017, I gave my life to Jesus. And it was like a battle, guys. Like I was in things I shouldn't have been in. But from that moment, I remember thinking, Jesus saved me from suicide. I'm never going to have to deal with this stuff again. And I was very wrong. <laughs> I remember thinking for years, this is just spiritual warfare. Like, I'm not sure what's happening. This is just really difficult. And then fast forward to 2020, prior to the world going crazy, around January. And this is definitely, like, I was talking to Dave about this. I was like, this is literally God's evidence of showing up and knowing exactly what I need when I needed it. Because I'm telling you right now, even as a Christian in 2020, I would not have survived COVID. And so... I remember in January or December, I left a full-time ministry job at the university, and that was hard. I was like, man, am I giving up on God's calling in my life? Am I not a strong enough Christian? And I just kind of started spiraling. Like, that was the first time that I was kind of, like, really challenged in my faith after, what, like, three years. And so I remember walking, I was going to see a therapist ever since I became a Christian because I had, like, a Christian counselor, so that was, like, three years of being in therapy doing all the stuff, working out, going to therapy, um, praising Jesus, getting the Bible. And I was like, why are these things not going away? And so I remember walking into my therapist's office um, around January, and I looked her dead in the eyes. And, I, and I've been in school studying this stuff too, so it's like I know the coping skills. And I just looked at her and I was like, if something doesn't change, um, I'm not going to be here. And she just kind of looked at me, and she was like, okay, we need to get you help. <clears throat> so from there, man, it was crazy. She referred me to a psychiatrist, and she was like, I feel that you have bipolar disorder, but I can't diagnose you with that. And I was like, what? I do not have bipolar disorder. Like, bipolar people are crazy. Like, I am not bipolar. And I just remember thinking, like, there's no way. Like, I've only ever had depression. And then I got to um, the psychiatrist, and I was, like, explaining everything to her. And I remember she, I don't think I shared this with you, but my psychiatrist was like, she just looked at me, and she's like, so you're telling me three to four days out of the week you would be sleeping and not leaving your room and telling everyone you're sick and just resting. And then the other three, three or so days, you would read an entire textbook and do all your homework for the next three weeks. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, pretty much. And she was like, so that's bipolar. You're um, bipolar too. You're down for a few days and you can't do anything. And then you're super manic and you're super high. And then you knock out everything in life. And I was just like, no, that's like the goodness of God coming back through whenever my spiritual warfare is gone, you know? And there's definitely like a case for some of that stuff. But from then on, I had been on medication. And I'm telling you, my life was literally like this. And then when I got on medication, it's like still, still there. It's still really hard sometimes. But I'm more consistent now than I ever have been. And I've seen the goodness of God showing up. Because I'm telling you, like in January, I was medicated. And if it was not for that, being alone in COVID and not knowing what was going on, I can't tell you that I'd be here talking to you right now because it was that severe. And so like God, it was just evidence of the Lord showing up and showing me, hey, it's okay to be on medication. It doesn't make me any less um, powerful in your life. And it doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you. It just means that like you're unhealthy and you need to get healthy. There's something off here. And so 
I was telling Pastor Dave this, I was like, what's hard for me, and I remember thinking this whenever I first got diagnosed, is like, this doesn't go away. Like, I can't just like go through counseling um, if I had depression or anxiety from a loss or trauma and be okay and be healed. Like, it doesn't go away. I have to wake up every day and I have to take medication every night and I have to choose who am I gonna be with a disorder that I cannot ever change. Unless the Lord completely heals it, like he, he can do that. But until that happens, like I just have to understand how to live and how to experience the goodness of God without the limitation and excuse of having a diagnosis. So that's kind of been my journey. Yeah, so um, I think you know, there's a lot of important aspects to that situation, but the one that like it was, the other day was like ringing true for me and just still rings true as I listen to you share now is like how I guess I guess the question for like that I would want everybody in the group to know here is like how you still even on medication you still have those like peaks and valleys they're, they're maybe not quite as steep but they're still there and you still feel it so as somebody who's like running their own business somebody who's like faithful at church faithful as a life group leader um, faithful as a wife like how how do you wake up if you wake up on one of those days where you're like in the valley Mm -hmm. And all you want to do is like shut the bedroom door and hide from the world, not talk or see anyone. Um, how do you like, how do you press into that? Like, how do you press into life? Because you can't just like cancel work or, or skip life group or like you, you never do that. I never know you to do that. You always like press in and do whatever it is you're doing. So how do you do that when you have those days? Yeah, I think um, I still have the days. Like, I still have days where I wake up and I have literally no desire to do anything. Um, but I remember I'm a wedding photographer, and it's not like I can show up to a wedding day and wake up on a Saturday and be like, I don't feel like getting up, so I'm going to skip your wedding, or you can reschedule it. Like, it doesn't work that way. Like, I had to figure out how to still press through those hard days. And I think with Jesus, it's like the idea is it's okay to take rest. It's okay to say to your spouse, like, I'm not doing well today, and I need space. And so it's funny because I remember early on, like in our marriage, we were just like a roller coaster, and we were crazy, and then some days I'd be bawling my eyes out. Um, and then we learned how to communicate what I'm feeling when I'm feeling it, and some days it's not perfect, but I'll just say, I'm not having a good day, I need to lay on the couch today. But... Wait a second, time out. Mm -hmm. That sounds a lot like... Owning your stronghold is what it sounds like. I'm just saying, sounds a lot like getting real and honest out loud about it, right? So, are we clapping for Kayla again? No. Is that what we're doing now? We're just Thanks, clapping no, nonstop for it. Kayla? Okay. So yeah, I like that. Go ahead. Keep going. Yeah. Um, however, like those days um, are less than the days that I get up and I'm freaking grinding and I'm doing what I need to do, right? Uh, but I'm in scripture. And so... I think I wrote this down earlier because it really made me think about like what you were saying, but it's the idea that like we want the power of Jesus without the submission to Jesus. And every single day I have to wake up and say like, I'm going to submit to the Lord. I'm going to be in prayer today. I'm going to open my Bible because I know what it's like to be at the lowest valley and how desperately I need to just have a verse in my mind. Some of those days I lay down, I'm not in the word. And I have to remember like the Lord, it's okay to rest, but it's the same thing of like putting on the armor of God. You pray, you're in your word. Guess what? Whenever you're down, you still have the armor of God on because you've been preparing it and putting it on your body and putting it on your soul. And so if I want to be consistent in life, I have to be consistent in the word and with the Lord. And so, so many times, again, it's like, 
I want the power of God, but I don't want to submit to the things he's asking me to do. And so I've really had to like get into the word and have like those verses and understand like, okay, I've I just talked to you about this, but um, and I say this all the time to people who have like talked to me about things they're struggling with. I'm like, the Lord promises us joy and that's a promise. And it might not be tomorrow or the next day or the next day, but I cling to that promise that like he is telling me that joy comes in the morning. So one morning I will wake up, but who am I gonna be on that in between? Like who am I gonna choose to be as a Christian following Jesus on the days where I'm not waking up with joy? And so I have to lean into the fact that like I will wake up and life can suck on those days. But guess what? I'm still going to be obedient in the process. Like, I mean, Joseph, I was talking to you about this. Joseph lived his whole life in this place of like, he had this dream. And then his brothers basically sold him into slavery. And it was like, why did, why did this guy that had so much favor from the Lord get so, like, sold into slavery? Why did this woman try to say that he raped her? Like, there were really difficult things that happened to Joseph. But guess what? The Lord kept giving him favor and kept elevating him. But I always think of his life because I'm thinking, if this man of God had to go through all of these trials, who am I to think that I don't have to go through anything at all? But guess what? At the end of the day, Joseph is the ruling over this entire kingdom, because the Lord saw his faithfulness and the Lord had already known far before anything that he could have done wrong that he was gonna be consistent in his life. And so many of you probably don't know that story, but what the point is, is the idea of if I'm not reading the Bible, how am I gonna know God's faithful? How am I gonna wake up on those days and struggle to get out of bed if I'm not in scripture recognizing the promises God has for me and recognizing, hey, there are people in scripture that had the greatest faith and went through the crappiest stuff. And who am I to think that that's not gonna be happening in my life? And so like, I have to be in scripture, I have to be in the word. And I think I have to like own those strongholds and talk through them and pray through them. Like praying through Romans 12 too. I'm not gonna let be conformed to the world of people who want to choose a cop out. And I've said this so many times, but it's like having a mental health issue or a symptom of a mental health issue is not an excuse for you to cop out, but it's an explanation for your behavior. It explains, yeah, it explains why I'm like this, but guess what? It's not an excuse for me to cop out and not love people or not follow Jesus on the days where it's hard. And so that's definitely like the things that kind of keep me pushing forward. I love that. She's so wise. Now you can clap for her. Thank you, Kayla. Okay, so um, I thought that was helpful for me to talk with her. I thought it'd be helpful for you guys to hear from her. She says she's available 24-7. Anybody wants to meet with her? <laughs> she doesn't have anything going on, so yeah. But um, so here's what I want to do. I want to just give you um, real quick and give you three things. I think these are the three lies the enemy speaks to all of us on some level. Maybe, you'll re maybe one of them will resonate with you, but but um, let me show them to you on the screen, the three main lies he uses to get us. Here they are. I'm helpless, I'm worthless, or I'm unlovable. Maybe you feel one of those right now. Sometimes maybe you feel two of them. Maybe you feel all three. I don't know. But I think these are the three areas of mental attack the enemy makes on us. I'm helpless, I'm unworthy, I'm unlovable. I'm worthless, I'm unlovable. I'm helpless, I'm worthless, I'm unlovable. But here's the thing about each of these three. God actually says the opposite about you for all three of these. Think about it for a second. When you feel helpless, doesn't God actually say he's given us the power to defeat sin? That, he, that we're more than a conqueror? 
that the Holy Spirit within you is greater than anyone or anything in the world around you? When you're feeling worthless, when the enemy is saying you have no value and no worth, doesn't God actually say that you've been made in his image? Doesn't God say that you're his most prized possession? Doesn't God say that you're his child with an inheritance of riches waiting? How could you be worthless? When you feel unlovable, doesn't God say that his love for you is unending? That his plans for your life are good? And that he'd leave the 99 sheep that are found to find the one lost sheep that's missing? Doesn't he actually love you? I can look at those three things and I can think to myself, yeah, I've, I've felt all three of those at times in my life and, and maybe there is one that I really wrestle with and feel a lot, but I don't like the next thing I'm about to say, which is the truth that when I feel those things and then I think those things, and then I allow myself to let those things live in my brain rent-free, when I let myself, when I choose to think on those things, start to believe them, what I'm really saying is that God's a liar. Because they both can't be right. Either God is right or the enemy's right. Either my feelings are right or God is right. And God says he loves me and that I have worth. He says that I'm not helpless, that I've overcome and that I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. He says that about me. See, this is a fight every day, a fight to choose. Not to choose how I'm going to feel. That's going to come and go. But how I'm going to think. Let me just give you a list of the weapons that the enemy uses to bombard you with these lies. And then I'll give you a list of weapons that God says will drive those lies out of your head. Can I do that? We'll just do this pretty quick. Let me reread you the passage I read you last week. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 to 5 kind of sums this up. We are human, but we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. We capture every rebellious thought and teach them to obey Christ. So here's the list. Here's how the enemy attacks And here's how you can defend this week. Ready? The first method or first attack he gives us is the attack of self-importance. He comes at us. He tries to convince you that what you need is more self-esteem. If you just talk yourself up in the mirror, your day will go better. Self-esteem, that's kind of a catchword in mental health. A lot of psychologists and psychiatrists use that word. You know God never talks about self-esteem in the Bible? Pumping yourself up giving yourself more esteem. He never talks about that. In fact, in the Bible, he shares the opposite. He kind of says that I I tend to think a little too much of myself. And what God talks about in the Bible is not more self-esteem, it's more God-esteem. That the answer to feeling better is not about me becoming more and more and greater and greater. It's about him getting more elevated in my life. Not self-esteem, not, not, not self-importance, where I have to be the most important character in the story. But no, God's weapon is humility. And then if I brag about my weaknesses, he'll actually be strong. If I brag about God's greatness, he'll actually free me in my mind. 
Let me read you 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. It says, Humble yourselves under the mighty power of God, and at the right time, He will lift you up in honor. Man, I wish I could just be lifted up. I wish I could just feel better about who I am as a person. I wish there was some bit of honor in who I am in this existence. Then humble yourself. Own your weaknesses. Stop trying to act like you're so great. Start bragging about God's greatness. The Bible says to brag about two things how messed up you are, and how great God is. We tend to do the opposite. Here's another weapon the enemy uses to kind of speak these lies to you, the weapon of noise. So I ask you today, I ask you today, that looks so funky on that screen just for the record, but I ask you today, how much noise is there in life? Let me, let me say it another way. How many moments are there in any given day that there's no noise in your life? that the phone is off, the TV's turned off, the kids are locked down in some other room, you know? How many moments are there where there's just peace and quiet in your day? I love it when you say, Stephanie and I have this talk very often about peace and quiet and rest, but um, I love it when I hear people say like, I just don't have time. You know you have exactly the same amount of time in your day. This, this is gonna show, you, want, you might wanna write this down as every single other person in the world. You got that? That's, you don't get that unless you go to college, Emmanuel. All right, that's deep thinking there, okay? You have the exact same amount of minutes in your day that Jesus had in his day. Are you busier and more important than him? You have the exact same amount of minutes in your day that every apostle who wrote scripture had. You know, every single great thing that's recorded in the Bible that Jesus did, right before it or right after it, he went off by himself somewhere. <laughs> to pray, to be alone with his Father, to just be alone with his thoughts, to rest. And so God's answer to noise, the weapon we use to fight back against that is solitude. I stole all of these from a book, just for the record. This list comes from Get Out of Your Head by Jenny Allen. But that's okay. She's an expert, too. I'll let her be an expert. Everybody can be an expert with me. I'm good with that. But I stole this list. But it's such a good list. I thought it would be worth us sharing. God's answer for that is solitude. You don't believe me? Here's what Psalm 91.1 says. Those who live in the shelter of the Most High will find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Where's your rest? It's going to be found spending time alone with your God. I love Psalm 1. It's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible where um, the psalmist describes how to have a blessed life. And he says, you're blessed if you don't walk around with sinful, messed up people all the time. Protect your friendships, right? But then he goes on to say, you'll also be blessed if, if you meditate on God's word day and night. I love what Kayla said about, like, I have to be in God's word all the time or else I'm going to buy into my feelings. Solitude. Here's the next weapon the enemy uses, cynicism, where we start to think everyone's out to get us. Everyone hates us. Nobody likes me. And the world's just such a messed up place. I'd be better off to hide at my house by myself. Cynicism. Maybe you feel some of these as we're going through this. Yeah, everything on my social media account is about making me look better. Yeah, my entire life's jam-packed with noise. Yeah, I always feel like hiding out because I think the world's out to get me. I think people just hate me. 
God's weapon to combat cynicism is delight. Let me read you one verse in Psalm 37, 4. It says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Man, I just wish I could just feel some fulfillment, feel some contentment. Yeah, delight yourself in the Lord. God made you to walk around and enjoy his planet. I mean, do you even have time to walk around and enjoy God's planet? When was the last time you did? Some of you, listen, some of your mental health would be better. You can write this one down too. This is equally deep. If you just had some fun. Some of you hadn't had fun for decades. We ran around our group of guys, the guys group I'm in on Monday. We asked everybody, tell me one thing you do for fun. It was like a stretch for half of us to like think of something we actually do for fun. Because for some of us, it's just work, family, sleep. Work, family, sleep. Work, family, sleep. When was the last time you just ate an ice cream cone didn't feel guilty about it? God like made you to delight in his world and in him. And we don't ever do that. Everything to us is just cynicism. Uh, eating this ice cream, this probably make me die earlier. Can't even enjoy it. Going for a walk, I don't really have time for this. The whole walk, you're thinking about the next seven things you got to do. Here's the next weapon the enemy uses to speak these lies to you. The weapon of isolation. Oh my goodness, if this isn't a good one. Isolation. Everything inside of you is screaming to isolate. You believe the lies. If people know the real me, they'll reject me. Or at best, if they know the real me, they'll use it against me. They'll post it. They'll talk behind my back. They'll make me feel like a nothing I'd be better off just to hide in my basement or my granddad's basement. Noah lives in his granddad's basement. Everything inside of you is screaming that stuff. Isolate, isolate, isolate. It's mind-boggling how hard, how this is like hardwired into our brains now. We think it's right. We think it's normal. Well, that was one of the things we talked about this week too. We've so normalized like mental health as being valid excuses to shut your life down and do nothing. That people without even a diagnosis are using it as a reason to just do nothing with their life. I can't pray in front of people. I can't speak in public. I can't lead my family in devotions. I can't read God's Word. I don't read so well. I can't take on a serving role. I don't have the time for that. I'll just be stressed all the time. I'll be anxious. I'll be worried. They'll reject me. I'll be so alone. I'll just fall back. And we live a life of scaredness. Everything is fear. I'm terrified of everything, and I never choose to push into any of it. I just do what makes me feel comfortable. And that's for people who don't even have a diagnosis. They're not even on like the high end of the struggle. Just any little discomfort, and I quit. Somebody might be listening to me sing. I'll just be quiet. Somebody might be watching me. I'll just sit real still. I don't know how this happened. I don't know how, if guys are to blame or girls are to blame. But somehow, like in the last 50 or 60 years, the church has developed this attitude that a godly man is somehow this guy that stands looking grumpy doesn't talk. I don't see that anywhere in the Bible. The men I see in the Bible, they pushed in with courage to fight lions and giants. They pushed in with courage to write Scripture they pushed in with courage to walk on water. They pushed in with courage to lead nations. And the men today are like, I'll just let my wife answer everything. 
I'm not sure whose fault that is, but it's like, man, rise up. You can choose how you think. You can be a man or a woman of faith. You don't have to walk by feelings anymore. Which one am I on? What was the last one? Isolation. God's weapon against isolation is community. Community. I've never been in a church that preaches, teaches, and encourages community more than this one. Let me read you a piece of the very first church. And tell me if this doesn't sound like community. Acts chapter 2, verse 44. All the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes, shared meals, had great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day God was doing all the work. And each day God was adding to their fellowship those who were being saved. I don't have to save anyone. I don't have to be responsible for knowing a whole lot of stuff or doing a whole lot of stuff. I just have to trust Jesus in his way. I just have to believe and change the way I think. Here's the next weapon the enemy uses, victimhood. Nope, that's not it. Complacency. Complacency. Can you pull me back just a little bit more, Noah? It's like squealing on me. And so it's like I get to this point in my life where it's like I just don't want to do difficult things. I just don't want to do anything that requires effort or work for me. I don't want to do anything that makes me feel uncomfortable. It should be easier than this, I think. I should be able to just walk in, watch, and walk out. Isn't that what the life of faith is all about? I don't find that in the Bible anywhere. It's a life of scary risk-taking. No complacency. God's weapon against complacency is intentionality. That I do everything with intentionality, like it says in Colossians 4. Listen to how Paul describes this to the people he's writing to. Devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. Pray for us too that God will give us many opportunities to speak about his mysterious plan concerning Christ. Now that would be fascinating in and of itself until you take into account the next phrase where Paul lets them know he's in prison. And what he's asking them to pray for him about is that they'll have more opportunities to serve Jesus. That I'll have more opportunities to share my faith. I know I'm in prison because I shared my faith, but give me more chances to share my faith. Bring on more persecution, more difficulty, more discomfort. Then he says to them in verse 4, pray that I will proclaim the message as clearly as I should. And then in verse 5 he says, and you guys... Live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. You only get one life. Don't waste it being silent. Don't waste it letting your spouse do all the hard, heavy lifting. Who's going to raise my kids? I'm going to raise my kids. Who's going to reach my neighbor? I'm going to reach my neighbor. Who's going to share their faith with their coworkers? I'm going to share my faith with my coworkers. Well, not me because both my coworkers say, but, but I'm going to share my faith with my coworkers. Who's going to love their neighbors? The preacher's not going to come to your house and love your neighbors. You've got to rise up and live with intentionality. You only get one life. And God's answer for this struggle in our mind, I feel worthless, is to get intentional and stop being complacent. The next weapon the devil uses is victimhood. Now listen, I know some horrible things have happened to you. I know it. I know there are people in the room who have been raped, who have been molested, who have been stabbed in the back and betrayed. 
who have been taken advantage of, robbed. I know there are people that have experienced other violent crimes in our room. I know there are people who have been diagnosed with PTSD, anxiety, social anxiety disorder. I know there are people in the room like me that have obsessive compulsive disorder. I'm actually not diagnosed, but I could be, I think. I feel it all the time. But I got to be intentional about choosing God's way. I got to put into practice God's weapon to not be a victim. Those things all happen to us and are all happening in us, but they don't have to define who we are. And God's weapon to fight back against victimhood is gratitude, gratefulness. I love Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. Paul writes, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Now listen to what he says to pray. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he's done. Then you'll experience God's peace. Man, I just need some peace. I'm so unstable. Start thanking God. Start thanking God. The devil's next weapon that he uses against us is the weapon of anxiety. This might be the biggest one makes me worried about everything, whispers into my ear all of these what-if statements. What if they leave you? What if you don't have enough? What if you don't measure up? What if they betray you? What if they misuse that information? And it, and it, and it paralyzes me. But here's the thing. In the Bible, God never says what if. He always says, I will. I love what Kayla shared, that all the things God says are promises. You can bank on them. And so God's antidote or his weapon to fight back against anxiety is the weapon of trust. Do I actually trust God? Hebrews 13, 5 is a verse I shared with both of my kids when they became Christians. It's a verse I started sharing when I was in high school leading little kids to Christ. And it's just five words. The verse is actually a little longer, but I shorten it just so kids can remember it. It says, be content with what you have. For God has said, I will never leave you. I will never abandon you. So I always say to my kids, you got one word for each finger on your hand. God will never leave me. God will never abandon me. I trust him. It might be rocky, it might be wavy, it might not look good, but I trust him to work it all together for good. I trust him to give me a future and a hope. Do you get it? These are God's weapons. So I ask you, to whatever degree you're struggling with mental health today, how often have you seen yourself talk about your weaknesses out loud and be humble? How often have you seen yourself retreat to solitude, not to hide from the world, but to spend time with your heavenly father? Because it has to happen daily. How often do you delight in God and the world he's given you to live in? Or how often is it just mundane, routine, check off the next thing on the list and get to the next assignment? How often do you press into community instead of isolating and hiding? How often are you intentional about doing everything you do as if you were doing it for the Lord, as if he was the audience you were performing for, about serving with intentionality? And how often do you speak thankfulness to God? Is it just at Thanksgiving when your mom makes you pray or say something at the Thanksgiving table? How many things are you thankful for to God? You start to feel uh, a victimhood set in. You start to feel worried or anxious again. Try that. Just start listing off a bunch of things. God, I'm so thankful for. Boom, 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 boom. List them. It's hard to feel worthless when God's given you so much. But if you forget he's given you that much, you start to feel worthless. 
All right, so I just want to leave you with this. I was telling this story at the Guy's Life group this week, and it made me think of it, so I wanted to share it with you. When I was a little kid, before I could swim, before I could swim, my family was at this state park, and, and we were swimming, and, um, but, but I couldn't swim, so I was just like standing in the water, you know? And uh, I was like the youngest kid around. And so I remember all the older kids like walking out to the deep end, right? And so I walked out till I got to like my chinny chin chin, you know what I'm talking about? And then I took like one more step and then somebody had like dug out in the sand like a big hole. And I just went like boom, like over my head, okay? And I couldn't swim. So uh, I don't know if you're following this story or not so far, but like I'm dead. Basically, I'm dead now. You got me? I'm about to die, okay? And I don't remember how old I was, but all the other kids were further out Nobody was around me. I was uh, pretty arrogant. I knew I wasn't supposed to go out past where I could stand, right? But, but I was the most important thing. And what I felt like I wanted to do was the most important thing. I was isolated all by myself. I was pretty, pretty, pretty much a cynic towards my parents. I can do what I want. I'm a big kid, you know? But as soon as I went underwater, I felt a lot of anxiety. Is that fair? It was hopeless. There was nothing I could do to rescue myself. But about five feet away, there was a stranger, some dude. I don't know who he is. And he was watching me and saw me sink in the hole. And he just walked over, grabbed my arm, yanked me back three feet, and said, careful walked away in the water, right? I didn't know him, but on his face, there was no anxiety. There was no fear. He wasn't worried. He saw what was going on the whole time. I feel like that's us. I do the same thing now for my kids. I watch them swim. They're not such great swimmers yet. And I watch Logan try to walk out and be the big kid and get to where he can barely stand. And I just watch him. And every once in a while, he's gone a little too far. I just grab his arm pull him back a couple feet, he's good to go again. I feel like that's what God would want to say to you today. You feel like over your head with anxiety, over your head with worry or depression, over your head with obsessive compulsiveness or PTSD, over your head with mental health things that are just bombarding you. You feel a little helpless. You feel a little worthless. You feel a little unloved. And I feel like God would be like, I'm right here, dude. It's good. It's good. I got you. Just kind of like, let me pull you back. Maybe that's why he brought you here this morning, just to be like, hey, you just need to yank back a couple feet. It's not as bad as you think it is. I made a good world for you. I surrounded you with community to press into. I'm giving you my truth every day. You can spend time with me in solitude. I want you to know I love you more than anything. And I'm always watching. I'm always watching. And I'm never worried. I'm never upset. I'm never concerned. I'm never afraid of any of it. I've got your back. I've shared with our church many times. The most often repeated command in the Bible is not the command to love God, it's not the command to not murder, to not steal. The most often repeated command in the Bible is do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. It's as if God knew we'd be so prone to be afraid of everything. But the beauty of that command in the Bible is that just about every time God says not to be afraid, he lists with it the reason to not be afraid. And it's always one of three things. It's always don't be afraid for I have never failed you in the past. Don't be afraid, for I am with you right now in the present. Or don't be afraid, for I will never leave you in the future. 
And so I don't know if your social anxiety or your depression or your other mental health illnesses or diseases or diagnoses or concerns or struggles. I don't know if they're about things that have happened to you in the past, things you're facing right now, or things you're worried about that are coming. But I know that God's in all three of those places and he says, don't be afraid, I got you. I got you. And if you're in Christ, he's already won the victory. Psalm 118.6 says it this way, the Lord is with me, so I will have no fear. What can mere people do to me? And I was thinking of a passage I wanted to leave you with. I wrestled like three or four, but I want to just take you to one of my favorite ones in the Bible, Romans chapter eight. If you want a good chunk of scripture on like mental health, man, read through Romans chapter six through eight. You get a good picture of who you are in Jesus and how you should really be thinking. But let me just read you a couple of verses at the end here. Romans chapter eight, verse 35. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or are hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No. You feel unlovable? He loves you no matter what. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. You're not worthless. You have victory. And I'm convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today or our worries for tomorrow, not even the power of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me translate. You're not helpless. You're not worthless. You're not unlovable. God says you're all the opposites. That he loves you. You have amazing value and worth. That you have power to overcome anything because of him. You could take back your thoughts today. You could change the direction of your mental health. You can choose the way you're going to think. You can let God transform you by changing the way you think today. Can I just real quick encourage you, go out of here today and pick one of them. Just pick one of the weapons and start using it. I gave you seven, but just pick one of them. How can I be more humble today? How can I spend more time in solitude with the Lord today? How can I trust God more today? How can I step out in faith and be intentional about my relationship with God and serving him today? How can I press into community and Christian community more today? How can I be more grateful today? Just pick one of them and go at it. Attack. We're at war. You could turn the tables on the fight today. It's your choice, like always. It's my job just to give you the truth. It's your job to take it out of here and decide what you're going to do with it. In Jesus' name, let me pray for you. Dear Heavenly Father, come to you today with no power of our own, but only the mighty name of Jesus and the privileges he's earned for us. And I beg you to just unleash on the people in our room the courage to pray in the next few moments and commit to put one of these weapons into practice. Will you give him that courage, Jesus? In, in your name I pray, amen. What an amazing challenge from God's Word for all of us. We hope you will start putting everything you've learned in this session into practice. And be sure to subscribe to the 3SC Podcast so you'll never miss any new content. Thanks for listening.